You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about classical studies, featuring our guest Danelle Padilla-Peralta, Associate Professor of Classics at Princeton University. Dr. Padilla-Peralta is a scholar whose research and teaching focus on the Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire, as well as the ways in which the classical period has been understood in the United States and Latin America. In addition to his academic work, Dr. Padilla-Peralta became known more broadly for Undocumented, his memoir about his experience growing up in the U.S. after coming from the Dominican Republic as a child. He was the subject of a long profile published in the New York Times Magazine in 2021, which has made him a touchstone for rethinking the discipline of classical studies. Welcome, Dr. Padilla-Peralta. It's really a treat to be your guest um, and to contribute to the series. So while the study of ancient Greek and Roman civilizations has been ongoing uh, in the two millennia since antiquity, the discipline of classics is, as we know it today, began to take shape in the 18th century. Uh, And if you can help first guide us uh, into what classics, when we say classics, is uh, for those who are outside the field, that would be a great place to start. I'd be happy to. The emergence of the field that we nowadays in the Euro-Americas describe as classic is shaped by several factors. One of them is a historical development that precedes the 18th century. It's the so-called rediscovery um, of Latin and ancient Greek texts in the Renaissance. And following that rediscovery, this enormous outlay of critical energy, intellectual capital into studying these texts and into in some cases, making sure that we had better texts of authors from the Greek and Roman world, authors like a Homer uh, or a Virgil. And in other cases, seeking to clarify just what these texts could tell us about the cultures and societies from which they sprung. In the 18th and 19th centuries, there's a pretty big escalation of this work that coincides in part with several other historical developments. Among the most important is the rise of the modern university, but also relevant to understanding the rise of classics as a field are various nationalist movements that give a spur to the intensifying attachment to Greece and Italy in particular, the Greek revolution and the war for independence in Greece, the French Revolution and the Haitian Revolution um, as transformative moments in modernity. And then, as we get into the 19th century, the worldwide expansion of settler colonial empires, which together force to the surface these pretty extensive efforts at rethinking what is a classic, what is classical, what is classical antiquity, and what is a field devoted to the study of classical antiquity. So that's really interesting. So for many people, classics refers to a period in antiquity in the ancient world, but also to a part of the world that we associate with antiquity. And you're also showing us now that the field of classics 
is emerging at what was then a contemporary moment uh, with potentially contemporary questions or surrounding the establishment of a field dedicated. So is classics a place? Is it a period of time? Or is it a value judgment about what is to be derived from that place and period of time? Yeah, it's really all three. That does excellent work in clarifying how the classics and the classical operate as terms. So classical antiquity marks a period of history and a space in history. The Greek and Roman worlds of the first millennium BC and first millennium CE with a cutoff usually around um, 500 CE or thereabouts, maybe earlier, depending on your perspective. But riding the coattails of this effort at specifying a period in space and history is a, is a valuation, is a value judgment. And this is where the, your clarification is, is vital. The classical has, from its inception and gestation as a concept, always been tied up with issues of value and valuation. And this is what some of the best work in the study of the history of classics has tried to bring out, work like post-classicisms, for example, a collective that has thought very critically about what it means to value things. So whenever we talk about the classical, and here I'm not limiting myself solely to describing the ancient Greek and Roman world, folks can think, for example, about classical music. There, there is always a value judgment encoded. And thinking about that form of valuation is really important to the kinds of history uh, that folks interested in the history of classical scholarship pursue. So help me uh, also understand the relationship to the modern Western university. This series is interrogating the disciplines of the liberal arts and classical studies is one that is core to at least the 19th and 20th century liberal arts university. Where's classics in that story in the 18th, 19th century? Classics is part of a move, especially in German context in in the 19th century, but also in other sites throughout Western Europe and in the Anglophone Euro-Americas as well, to institutionalize knowledge. So the 19th century sees uh, the emergence of the departmental structure of university organization that has some affinities in the U.S. context with the organization of knowledge into faculties, which had been a long-running feature of university organization in Western Europe, but that also departs from this in significant respect. When we think nowadays of departments of classics, we tend to zero in on some common properties that these are presumed to to share. So uh, they feature language study, uh, primarily the study of ancient Greek and Latin. Uh, They feature courses devoted to the histories of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, usually some kind of classical civilizations course, and then more recently courses that try to study how ancient Greece and Rome have been received over time, have been understood and appropriated by communities over time. These different tracks within departmental configurations of classics are all traceable to 19th century moments. One of the major points of departure for folks who are trying to contextualize these developments is the rise of the modern research university in Germany in particular, 
And that often gets attention in histories of classical scholarship as uh, the springboard for some of the developments that define the history of the field. There are other stories, of course. We could also talk about Britain's place in the consolidation of classics as a department, as a departmentalized and disciplinarized field of thought. But for now, what's important to emphasize is that in this work of setting the study of ancient Greece and Rome up as a classical form of study that has its own particular disciplinarity, its own particular departmentalization, there are some hard boundaries that come into focus. And so we can talk more about what those boundaries look like. So how does race structure the discipline of classics as it starts to emerge at the moment when, as you're describing, students move from working exclusively with these authors and languages into the modern disciplinary structure that we start to see emerging in the later 19th century? I mean, you know, Charles Eliot's work as president of Harvard in the second half of the 19th century starts to shake up the kind of reliance on classical languages for what some have argued as a more modern approach that would be suited to the industrial age and the division of university education into disciplines. How does race structure the discipline of classics as it's now emerging in the post-Civil War period? So there are a couple of directions one can take here, and they range from sort of fairly sort of nitty gritty in their consideration of details of the field of classics to more general considerations. I'll cite one nitty gritty instance, and then I'll focus on a sort of more sweeping uh, macroscopic assessment. So one of the things that makes it possible for the field of classics to attain not just a kind of liftoff, but a reputation in some circles as a scientific or proto-scientific discipline is the enormous amount of effort that is lavished on the presentation, curation, and editing of classical texts. This effort, which begins in the Renaissance period, really reaches uh, new heights in the 18th and 19th century and is, among other things, subject to a standardization and structuring as folks develop what seem to be fairly scientific protocols or making corrections to those errors that are introduced in the transmission of text over time. Several folks have remarked in recent years that the turn to what's called codicology or stematology, the study of how these ancient texts and ancient manuscripts in particular are transmitted across time and in the course of this transmission incur various mistakes, various deficits that then have to be healed various contaminations that then have to be addressed, betray intriguing points of intersection with the advent of early modern and modern racial science. That when folks talk about family trees of texts, for example, they are not infrequently mobilizing concepts and practices that are also enjoying their heyday in a number of other scientific disciplines, including ones that are very focused on taxonomies of race. So this would be one area, but to turn to a sort of more sweeping account of the field's imbrications with race, let me cite two examples. First, there is wrestling among practitioners of classical studies, both those who have sort of professional uh, standing in the field and those who are trained in the study of the ancient Greek and Roman world, but who work and practice outside of the field, 
on the question of how to use the examples of ancient Greek and Roman civilizations and cultures in the service of very specific political causes. Chief among these causes is the struggle over uh, slavery and its abolition. And already in some of the foundational texts for abolition, I am thinking, for example, of David Walker's 1830 Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, we see a continuing and insistent recourse to Greco-Roman antiquity. Frederick Douglass, in his autobiography, tells us of his own turn to material that was steeped in a Ciceronian oratory as a critical foundation for his own self-fashioning. And in this way, the work of participating in what modern scholars call classical reception becomes bound up with larger questions of race and its legacies in the Euro-Americas and beyond. Of course, there are also receptions that seek to appropriate the ancient world in the justification and promotion, not just of slavery, but of other forms um, of racialized subjection. And this continues to be central to the field, even after the Civil War. But the other dimension I'll single out here very quickly has to do with what is best approached as a sort of studied silencing. You mentioned Charles Eliot earlier, and one of the developments to take into account is the transformation of the American university in the post-Civil War period. When, thanks to the advent of land-grant institutions, we see the spread of the university model funded, not infrequently, as many authors have pointed out, through indigenous dispossession. One of the crucial questions raised most notably in the case of the HBCUs that will emerge in this period is what constitutes liberal education. And here we see a very interesting struggle playing out. There are those who would argue that the study of ancient languages such as ancient Greek and Latin is a foundational feature of liberal education. And there are those who would argue that this is not or should not be part of liberal education. Interestingly enough, these debates are racialized. And so here is where we begin to see how the field itself becomes a point of contestation among different communities who are each striving to set out some parameters for what liberal education looks like in the U.S. and beyond. So I notice as you're speaking that you're using the word classicism. And so I want to uh, help our listeners to understand the difference between classics and classicism as, as you're using it. Yeah, this is a big point of emphasis in recent work, and I'm grateful to be pressed on for a definition here. So earlier we were talking about classics and the classical and how these become associated in the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries, in particular with ancient Greece and Rome as terms of value, as terms of valuation. When I bring up classicism, I am invoking a process. And this is a process that may have as one local instantiation the move to designate something like ancient Greece and Rome as classical, but that may actually be far more expansive, right? So if we want to think about classicism as a process, where I would ask people to sort of direct their attention is to questions of status and authority. How do we make things classical? Earlier, we talked about how the classical and classics um, seem to have some value attached to them. 
And one way of understanding classicism is that it's a way of constructing and assigning value. I would go further than this. I think that there's actually a sort of triple uh, layer to classicism. There, there are even more complicated definitions that one can give, but here's a tripartite one that I've been working with recently. I understand classicism to be a system of aesthetics that brings together one, a tradition that's received and contested within communities across space and time. Two, some claim about chronological precedence and priority. This stuff is older. This stuff is way older. And three, normative presumptions of value. This stuff is incredibly valuable, usually because it is much older. And so if we move from that sort of baseline for classicism, we can then imagine a situation in which there are actually all of these different competing classicism. Communities around the world have their own notions of classicism that are not bound up with ancient Greece and Rome. The question of, I think, signal interest for those of us who work on the study of the ancient Mediterranean is whether we have a collective responsibility to allow those different kinds of classicism to flourish. So when does the topic or notion of race emerge in discussions within the field of classical studies in the United States? I mean, is this a more recent occasion? I mean, you, you are, of course, very much identified with pushing classics. You were profiled in the New York Times magazine last year uh, with a famous headline that said he wants to save classics from whiteness, right, which provoked a whole lot of attention, I'm sure, to you outside the academy. When does this conversation within classics start to emerge? Not so much when, but how? How does it start to emerge? Yeah. How is always more interesting? Yeah, the how is always, always going to be more interesting. Um, so already in the 19th, but especially in the early 20th century, we see that race asserts itself in classical studies in the form of arguments concerning the properties, racial and otherwise, of ancient communities. So if in the 1800s, there were already efforts on the part of scholars from multiple uh, national communities of scholarship um, in Western Europe to zero in on the so-called racial features of the worlds of the Greeks and Romans, in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, we see a real swing in this line of work. Some of this work is very much bound up with contemporaneous debates about things like racial admixture. So one of the pioneering figures in Roman history in the early decades of the 20th century in the U.S., Tenny Frank, was someone who wrote at length about racial mixing in the Roman world as brought about by large-scale immigration in what is unmistakably a scholarly reflex of conversations and political convulsions taking place throughout the early decades of the 20th century and all concerned with migration and migration enforcement and restriction. But Frank wasn't alone. And if we look at some of the publications that arise from that period covering both the Roman Republican Empire, but also the Greek world from the late Bronze Age and, and early Iron Age, all the way down to the world of the Roman Empire and into late antiquity and the early Byzantine period, these anxieties about the racial composition of ancient communities are, on closer examination, always tied up with concerns of scholars writing in the Euro-Americas about 
what they perceive as uh, the racial configurations of their time. There's a pretty significant move in the post-World War II period, though, and here's where we can address two developments. Once, we can address both the emergence of race and ethnicity in the ancient world as a site of study on its own terms, and also the interaction of the crystallization of this subfield in classical studies with Cold War and post-Cold War developments. The key figure here is Howard's Frank Snowden. Snowden was this phenomenally productive scholar who, for many decades, very patiently labored to amass and interpret as much of the evidence as could be collected by one person for the presence of African and African-descendant people in Greek and Roman communities as possible. He was African-American, and Snowden's own life, as he acknowledged in some of his later writings, had been marked by episodes of racialization. And yet, for Snowden, the real investment of this kind of work was always to demonstrate that forms of racism that prevailed in the United States and, in fact, in the Euro-Americas of his lifetime were not apparent in antiquity. His major contribution took shape around the claim that taken together all of the different archives of evidence that he had so patiently sifted through did not speak to racial paradigms in the ancient world that were anything like racism in the 20th century. This conclusion has been disputed extensively, but what matters more nowadays, I think, than correcting Snowden's analysis of sort of individual bodies of material is the context in which Snowden operated and the excellent work being done nowadays to contextualize this two-part development in the post-World War period as really opening up for the field itself a place for engaging in forms of self-reflexive inquiry about the interrelation of the study of race in the past with the racial structures of the present and how one will necessarily inform the other. So that is a, a live and an ongoing conversation, accelerated, no doubt, by the publications of a person who developed a pretty formidable animosity with Frank Snowden. This is Martin Bernal. And now down into the early decades of the 21st century, the work of scholars such as Denise McCoskey and others who have really tried to lay out a case for thinking about race in antiquity and race in modernity as being interlinked processes. Well, I'm certainly someone who agrees with the idea that teaching the conflicts or teaching conflict around certain topics is useful to understanding them a bit better. And you're doing such a wonderful job of showing us how classics or classicism can be two things at once, so to speak, which is the ever-changing context within which we understand uh, a very distant past or set of pasts uh, as they interrelate. So. Let's talk a little bit about the very recent situation for classics and focusing on the conflict, so to speak. So first, you know, can you explain a little bit? There seems to be both you know, a lot of anxiety around classics as a field, classical studies as a field, and the intervention that you're making and other scholars that you're naming. Is that about the anxiety about whether the field itself would survive or what's at stake survive, or is it really just a anxiety around white supremacy? 
So I see several anxieties bubbling up to the surface recently. So there is, I think, a pessimism verging on fatalism about the fate of the discipline of classics in the face of uh, precarization, uh, neoliberalization, the austerity regimes of the Euro-Americas and beyond. And that concern is, I think, very much a part of contemporary agonizing over the future of the humanities writ large. What I would say, though, as I reflect on the prospects for the field of classics and its capacity to sort of incubate and cultivate generally anti-racist work, is that it would seem to me that we are faced with a pretty unique opportunity to enter into collaboration with folks in other disciplines who have been giving questions of value, of endurance, and of precarity a great deal of thought. It's perhaps not surprising uh, that some of the most creative and dynamic scholarship on these subjects has come from folks whose own epistemic positions and whose own identities have crystallized in the wake of historic and contemporary forms of minoritization and racial violence, right? But that's not to say that the field should turn to those folks for the express purpose of cannibalizing them or raiding them or exploiting their knowledges in an effort to survive, even though there, there are signs that folks and stewards of the field are sort of busy doing this, always looking for the next black and brown token. Um, what I think needs to happen is some more considered work in imagining a field where members of historically minoritized groups can flourish. And to that end, I think that there are two distinct moves that would need to be undertaken. The first is, as we've been doing uh, in this podcast, as the series that you've been helming uh, has tried to do, is demonstrate for folks how important it is to think about the humanities as a whole and different sort of constituent fields within the humanities in particular as bound up with histories of race and racial violence, right? This is, I think, a responsibility that we have to the past and to the present as well as to the future. It's part of the work that, that Will Bridges in a piece that really helped guide me when I was formulating a class syllabus uh, last spring has termed uh, the history of the inhumanities, right? So if we understand the humanities as this furnishing certain endowments for the exercise of modes of aesthetic expression, we should also be attentive to the kinds of constraints, the inhumane constraints that emerge in order to dictate who gets access to or is privileged to experience those forms of ecstatic cultivation and who is denied them. But in the case of classics in particular, I find that one of the more instructive avenues for the realization of these goods is in orienting students to the many ways in which our contemporary societies in the Euro-Americas and globally participate in processes of classicism. And so this gets us back to the definition, a little clarification that you'd asked earlier. So we are all of us doing the work of attaching forms of classicizing value to them. And what I find is helpful about the field of classics in the here and now is that it presents for study and scrutiny a set of devices, a set of techniques, a set of technologies, if you want to call them that for classicizing. And folks can and should learn from that as they embark on their own projects of world building. It may very well be that as a consequence of that world building, certain aspects of the field of classics that have been historically practiced temporarily fade from view. I'm okay with that. 
I, I think that's fine. Disciplines have to reinvent themselves anyway. But the more important thing is to show that there is a real vibrancy here that can be brought more manifestly into focus by thinking about classicism. Let me close with this question. Considering that remark, how can classicism, as you're describing it, be anti-racist? Can it be anti-racist? Do you have hopes that scholars, including those that you're training and yourself, can do a kind of anti-racist work within classical studies? Yeah, this is the question to answer now. So as part of this lecture series for Harvard, I had taken up the question over the past two months of whether we can move towards a space for classicism, understood again as a process, a process separable from the study of ancient Greek and Roman cultures, that affords genuine protection of and manifests a meaningful commitment to Black life. What I'll say, uh, set out as a sort of interim finding, is that the one form of classicism that is known to most folks is the study of the ancient Greek and Roman world as classic, and that this form of classicism has done what the scholar Sylvia Winter famously termed as overrepresentation. It has managed to overrepresent itself. Whenever you think of anything classical, if you're not thinking of classical music, you might think of the kind of classicism that is wedded to ancient Greece and Rome that has particular monumental face, a particular sculptural face, and so on. Unfortunately, this overrepresentation has come at the actual material cost of other forms of classicism. It has actively worked to suppress other forms of classicism. So the responsibility as I see it on the shoulders of practicing classicists is how to involve themselves in work that commits to a decolonial praxis, that empowers other classicisms to attain the space and resources that they need in order to flourish. I have one illustration of this. So I have a former colleague who's now at Yale, Erika Valdivieso, who has been doing a fair amount of work on the colonial Americas and has focused in particular on the interface between the reception of ancient Greece and Rome in the early modern Americas and efforts to study, recover, and, and protect, uh, where possible, indigenous languages, right? And so she and others have theorized this from the vantage of a sort of liberation philology, right? So how do we think in an emancipatory way about some of the tools of the trade in classical studies? We can think about how these tools can be put to effective work, not just in the recovery of historically subordinated or marginalized practices, but also potentially in the work of restoring and protecting marginalized and minoritized communities in the here and now. That to me seems like a pretty exciting prospect. But it's one that would require a pretty full-scale rewiring of how classical studies works in order to be accomplished effectively. Well, it's really exciting. And the whole conversation is exciting and inspiring, Danelle. I really appreciate the work that you're doing and that you are taking the time to speak with me for this series and inspire it. We've had a great conversation, and thanks for joining us for it. Thank you again so much. It's been a real pleasure. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. 
I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green. And special thanks to Professor Billy Sauce.